You ever have to wait for something for a very long time only to get right at the precipice of accomplishing or achieving or getting what you've been waiting for for a long time only to discover another set of problems in your way? Some of those problems may be trivial. Some of them may be significant. Maybe some of you have been waiting two years for the pandemic to end. And now we have a global conflict. Right when summer is about to open and you sense freedom, maybe you had a plan to go to Europe a couple years ago and you were planning to do that and you're like, oh, it's going to happen this year. Sometimes those things are trivial and small, but sometimes they're huge. Get into a university you've always dreamed about. You've been waiting your whole life. Somehow it's been drilled into you from childhood and you get in and then life happens to your family and all the resources you needed to attend are now no longer accessible and you lack the means to go. You meet someone. That person is the love of your life. You get to know them really well only to find out they have to move halfway around the world. God will sometimes put you in unexpected circumstances and places and timing to develop in you what you would never actually be able to develop on your own. To cause you to look at him rather than your circumstances, rather than your problems, rather than the the lack of whatever you lack. Joshua, in this part of the story, and the spies, they've returned from Jericho to Shittim, and the Israelites have been camped, and they've been just west of the land. And they're about to go in. And you can feel all the echoes of Moses' time, can't you? And this is done intentionally, both literarily, to draw attention to the story of before and Moses, but also there are theological connections that we're supposed to pay attention to. Our, our eyes are supposed to be drawn not only to the details, like, wow, this sounds a lot similar to what we read it before in Exodus. This is supposed to draw our attention to the Lord. Right before entering another, I mean, think about all this waiting. They waited for a generation of unfaithful people to die, and now they're heard from spies, we can do this, and they get to the precipice of the river, and a significant problem occurs. This whole narrative from chapters 3 to 4 center on this crossing story. The word pass over or to cross over occurs over 22 times. But the crossing, the actual crossing itself, takes up very little in the narrative story. Very, very little. And that's because our attention isn't supposed to be focused on the actual crossing itself, but on the Lord as he prepares his people in the midst of difficulties and challenges as he cares for people, as he causes their attention to be on him, not the actual challenge or the crossing itself. God puts the Israelites in an unexpected, uncomfortable, difficult position to grow in them what they could not grow on their own, which is continual dependence and attention and heart on the Lord himself. Let's look at some of these uncomfortable, unexpected parts of the story and then pay attention to how God wants to grow in them what they need and how that actually is also a theological truth that applies to us today. Let's look again at the first couple of verses, this first unexpected part of the story, this uncomfortable part in verses 1 to 2. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and 
They came to the Jordan. He and all the people of Israel lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp. They've spent a lot of time, Eshatim. This is generations of anticipation and excitement, knowing God has promised this land to us. There's a suspense here. You can feel the 10-mile the journey from Shatim to the river. And they get there, and look at the time. Three days, they wait there. That's not inconsequential, because actually in those three days, we read this later, we're going to look at this more in detail when you get to verse 15, but just for now, look at it. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. So think about this timing. In these three days, they're watching the river get more raging, get more difficult, get higher. The river is impassable. They've had this long journey only to come to the edge of a place that is improbable and almost impossible to pass on human efforts. It's like they're getting stopped literally at the one-yard line. They get there, and they get there, and then they get stopped right there. You ever gotten so close only to get stuck right there? You get there, and your delay seem, makes it seem like your goal is impossible. Or maybe the time you get there, and somehow you, you feel like it's right within your grasp, and God, would, have, for whatever reason, puts a time on your circumstance that makes you wait, and you're delayed again. I know so many of you probably have felt this, way, felt this way before, where you just get so close, and there's another roadblock, and you're screaming in prayer, how long? How long? Why is this taking so long? Why is it that I'm right here, God, and it's not within my grasp still? And I think this is one of those uncomfortable places that God brings us to very often in our following of Him, in our life call. Because He wants us to be faithful to His call, even when the timing seems the worst, even when the circumstances seem impossible. For the Israelites, it's now waiting to the point where this river is now uncrossable. It's a seemingly problematic delay, waiting three days. But God's promise is where He wants their attention to be at, not their circumstances. I promise to give you this land. The command is to go and rather than looking at everything that's stopping them, God wants their attention to be on him. Now Israel's call and their promise to enter the land was unique to them. That's not our call. That's not our promise. But we have, we have clear promises in the New Testament, in the gospel. We have clear commands to trust and follow him. And sometimes the timing seems ridiculous. The circumstances seem impossible. It may, it may be that God is bringing you right now, brothers and sisters, to a place where the timing seems ridiculous because he wants you to get your eyes off the circumstance and on him. So your dependence on God would grow, a dependence that you wouldn't be able to grow on your own, to trust in God and not what's before you, not in the timing, not in the circumstances. It's amazing to me how many times God has pressed this into our church experience time and time and time again. 
one of our uh, missionary units uh, we've sent out was home uh, during the pandemic. In fact, they came back during the pandemic because things were bad where they were. But then once they got here, things were bad here. <laughs> and then that country that they serve in made it very impossible to go back because they started kicking out everyone who's working there. Uh, and we prayed. I'm like, this is, like, we're wondering, like, in the midst of all this, you, you, they've desired to be there for so long and they were here and now they're no longer being able to get there. What, and they're, they're now stuck here. And they were stuck here for about a year. Like, what are you doing, God? Like, what, what, how, why is it that our desires to be there? We just got in and now we're kicked out and we're not, we can't go back in. And what does that mean? And as we prayed about that, as we had time to be with them and talk to them and see this, this, this we got to see God do what he does. But the main thing that I think was being taught to this unit and to us as a church again and again was like, get your eyes off of that timing. Get your eyes off the circumstance. If I want you there, I will get you there. If I, if I don't want you there, you won't be there because the problem is you don't have your eyes on me. Get your eyes on me. Continue in the story, you see more uncomfortable places where God is trying to draw attention to himself in ways that the Israelites wouldn't have learned on their own. Look at verses 3 to 4. And commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant and the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length, do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go. For you have not passed this way before. Whenever I see the Ark of the Covenant, immediately my imagination goes to Raiders of the Lost Ark. So I don't know if that's you. And you think like, oh man, like that's why you can't touch it because your face is going to melt off and all that craziness. Actually, that's one thing they kind of get right. The, the Ark of the Covenant, you better take it seriously. Remember that place where Uzzah, where it's about to fall over and he touches it in Chronicles and then he dies. And David's mad because like, what, what's going on? But no, that's what God has been saying since the very beginning of, in Leviticus. Like this, this, this is the symbol of my holiness. You don't do it in your way. It's a symbol of God's holiness, his glory. It's the most valuable and holy possession that Israel has. It contained three symbols within the ark that represented their relationship. And so they, it contained the tablets that had the Ten Commandments. It had Aaron's uh, rod, his, the high priest Aaron, and it also contained a jar of manna in it, representing their relationship to him. Priests were responsible for removing the ark, and they couldn't touch it. They carried it on poles. The ark was out first, and the people were supposed to follow it from a significant distance. 2,000 cubits, we don't use cubits. Uh, it's hard enough for us to use meters, but yeah, definitely cubits is strange. Uh, but basically, the cubit was like, kind of like finger to elbow, about 18 inches. So this is about 1,000 yards. It's well over half a mile. So this is pretty far out that they're supposed to be away from the ark in front of them. And you have to ask the question, why does the ark have to stay so far away as they're doing something that's really hard already. Why wouldn't God want to be near to his people? Wouldn't you want that thing to be that's so powerful and symbolic of God's presence to be close? And in part, again, I think it is a reminder of the holiness of God. And you have to approach him not with carelessness, but with 
careful attention to how he calls you to respond to him. Also, without any presumption. Again, Uzzah. Think about all the places where there's significant moments with the ark. But I, I think there, there's a sense in which this is also teaching a very important lesson to Israel, an uncomfortable one, uh, by this distance. It definitely is about holiness. In verse 5, Joshua tells them to consecrate themselves. So there's a sense in which there is a right approach to God, and you've got to approach a holy God by being holy yourselves. But the distance is also a focal point. If it's too close, like if the ark was literally just at the front, within only just right in front of the first line of people who are marching there, then only a few people could see it. Right? Because the people in the back, this is tens of thousands of people, and only, only be able to see it. But if it's out half a mile or more in front, then this is the focal point. Everyone who's actually going can actually see, at least even if it feels like a, a dot in the distance, they can see that this is leading the way. It's not Joshua who's leading them. It's the Lord. It, it's not the floodwaters that they are supposed to pay attention to that are raging at this point, but the Lord. God wants them to take their eyes off of human leaders as well as difficult circumstances. See, this, what do we do when things get hard? I remember very vividly, because it felt like a very chaotic time for our church leadership when the pandemic happened, because we were just kind of running around and trying to figure out what we were supposed to do. Should we shut down? Should we not? And all this kind of stuff. And what happens when things are hard? We either look to leaders to help us or look to leaders to blame. Or we look to circumstances and we just kind of bemoan this and complain about it. Or we almost pridefully think, oh, we got this. No big problem. And our eyes are focused either on the people or the circumstance. But this hard lesson that they're supposed to learn with this distant ark is their eyes are supposed to be on the Lord. They put the ark at a far distance, seemingly kind of strange and distant away to teach this very difficult lesson. Think about the New Testament. We're supposed to fix our attention. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Or think about the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. See, our eyes are too easily, our minds, our attention is far too easily focused on the human element, either to do it or to blame it, someone or the circumstance, and either pridefully think we got this, or to be overwhelmed and burdened by it. Maybe that's the word you need to hear today. In the midst of everything that's happening in your life and the world, take a second. Where are your eyes? And you can tell where your eyes are, one of the ways, and there's many ways, but what, is, what are you saying? Like, is it complaint? And where's that complaint at? Is it, is it like this pushing of strength? And where's that attention then? Is it on the circumstance? Is it on people? Our eyes, that difficult lesson of distance is supposed to draw their attention to, no, fix your eyes on the Lord. Fix your eyes on the Lord. Fix your eyes on the Lord not the raging waters, 
not Joshua. Also, there's an amazing lesson here in verse 7 and how leaders relate to God. And there's lots of little lessons on leadership throughout this book. We won't mention all of them as we're going through this book, but I think this one's worth paying attention to. Verse 7, The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that, as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. This isn't something that Joshua says to the people. It's something God says to Joshua. And he could have certainly rightfully said this to all the people. That he has authority and leadership, that God has actually given him this position. But there's no hint of arrogance or authoritarianism in Joshua. His concern is to just say what the Lord says about their task and about the Lord himself. Very short, just brief comment, I think. Maybe I'm just preaching to myself. Maybe you need to hear this. I think there's an important lesson about leadership and how we relate to God and other people here. We should seek the Lord's approval rather than the praise of the people. And some of you are leading in families, in classrooms, in workplaces. How often do you use your power, your authority, and maybe God has rightfully even given it to you, and you lord it over the people. Joshua is learning difficult lessons of leadership for sure. God is encouraging him behind the scenes, but here we see that he doesn't use his authority as a weapon over other people. He uses it to serve people. I want a word for me this week. Am I okay? Am I satisfied with what God says about my leadership? Or do I need people to praise me? Going on in the story, you see God describe himself in ways that the Israelites still need to learn after all these years. Verses 9 to 10. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, "How Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites. And that's a word to describe all the different peoples in that area. And so whether they're actually ethnically from that place, even if they move there, just all Canaanites. And he goes on to describe different groups within that group. Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Jebusites, and the Termites, right? So then you, you got all these ites. It's good to learn how to say those so you can pay attention that there are real people, real groups here. And we'll talk more. This isn't the right place in this particular sermon. We'll get there definitely when they're entering in and war. We'll get back to why God, again, I mentioned in the first sermon why God calls them to go in and how can this match with the loving, gracious God when he's calling them to go to war, actually. Um, but here, the focus is that he's a living God. Notice that, right? That the living God, that's a very intentional phrasing there. And then he lists all the people. And this is just something you'll see throughout the Old Testament again and again and again. There are dead gods that tempt us. For them, they represented it with physical little statues and physical idols. We don't tend to do that as frequently these days, but we have dead gods that tempt us. Rather than the dead gods of the Canaanites, and he lists all those people there, he wants their attention to be on the living God whose, whose word spoke everything into existence. He says that this about the living God, right? Behold, the Ark of the Covenant, in verse 11, the Lord of all the earth, 
All these gods of the Canaanites are little tribal gods. That's how they tended to view idols. They had a god of a particular area of life in a particular region, and that's its power. But you go appease that god, you go bribe that god, you get what you want. And it was a temptation for the Israelites to follow those gods because they would see the power and the economy and the might of these people and be like, well, they must be doing something right. So I must do things in their particular way. And we have that same kind of temptation, not with physical idols, not with the same religious cult system that they had, but you can look at people in this world and say, well, they have what I want and then pursue it in a way that's detached from the living God. And he wants to remind them, I'm not a little tribal God. I'm not just a God over your career or God over your relationship. I'm a God over everything, Lord of the entire earth. Like what one commentator says, he says, we must renounce our tendency to punify God, to carve him down to our stature and limit him to our possibilities. He's reminding them he's the living God. Is your view of God way too small? And you know how you can tell? What are you praying for? Actually, that's one of the ways you can tell you have a little dead God that you may actually be praying for to not the living God because all your prayers are on the same exact things that every single else in the world wants. Is your view of God way too small? Is it like these tribal gods where it's only for certain people, only powerful in certain ways, only Lord over your health, only Lord over your job, only Lord over your family? And it's not that we don't ask God for those things, but maybe it's a window to see that our view of God is way too small. He's a living God over all things. Are your eyes set on this living God? He's going to show them that. Or is it set on these little G-gods all over the world? The last kind of unexpected thing is the method. Look how God brings them into crossing. Look at verses 14 to 17 as the story ends, in this chapter at least. So when the people set out from the tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, I think it's this parenthetical statement. Now, the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam and the city that was beside Zarethan. And those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on the dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all the Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. He's brought them to the edge to teach them what it means to cross something that seems impossible to cross. That's why you have verse 15. It's telling you it's a harvest. Think about the, the tension that's here. There's tens of thousands of Israelite soldiers Young men, young women, children, all the animals, all their stuff that they brought out of Egypt waiting at the edge of this place. The Jordan Valley between the, the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea is between, the width is between 3 to 14 miles. And when the valley and the rivers flood during this time of harvest, 
it's between 200 yards to a mile wide. And the, under the river, at the bottom, which is what actually made it difficult to cross, is that there's tons of growth. It's almost like jungle-like at the bottom. And it, at this time, it gets to 10 to 12 feet deep. And so crossing it with all of these people, all this stuff, is impossible. The noise from the river's torrents may have well been shouting words at the people as it's kind of at this time. You can't get through. You're never going to inherit the promises of God. It's almost what they may be hearing as they're hearing the torrents of the water. And God brings them to this place of impossibility. And now we're not 100% sure why. I think as you're looking at the story, I think it's reasonable to assume that he wants them to feel this. He wants them to feel the frustration of human ability. It's not accidental that God wants them to feel helpless and hopeless and have this all rising to a boiling point. You can almost imagine the fireside conversation at nighttime each of those three nights, right? I don't know about you, but this Joshua guy, I don't think he knows what he's doing. Maybe we should go get another guy. I mean, we should have crossed three days ago. Are you sure he, he knows what it takes to get us into the land? Maybe this God has left us already. I mean, this, this, we can't get past this. Moses would have never made that mistake. I think God delights to show us his might in the face of helplessness so that we would recognize we do nothing in our deliverance. We bring nothing to our salvation. It's all grace. It's all his power. And God doesn't tell, give them any kind of pre-signs. He just says, as the priest touched the water, then they'll kind of be able to cross. And he brings them to this place of human impossibility to show us, to press into us in the tension of our frustration that this is where God's grace is most seen. I was wondering, how could this actually happen? I don't know if you ever kind of read these stories. And I have a, I, I try and have, I, I'm not a, well, let me say it this way. I think there's a healthiness to come with somewhat of a healthy skepticism and to ask questions of this. Not to dismiss supernatural ways, but to ask, how does this happen? And if you look at the way, ways that this could have happened, it kind of takes you down this rabbit hole a little bit. You know, God could have used an earthquake. On December 8th, 1267, there's a recorded earthquake that actually the banks of the Jordan fell into the river and dammed it completely for 10 hours. It's also happened in 1927. And so an earthquake could have happened. God's methods, though, and this is the point. I, mean, I was wondering, maybe that's helpful for you to get past that healthy skepticism. Like, how does the river just stop? How does it, how do they walk across to our land? God could have certainly used an earthquake. He could do whatever he wants. But God's methods, he brings them to this place where the river is most difficult to cross. Having the ark go first. Having the priest have nothing else other than just put your feet in the water. No other clues. Because God wants to show that it's all on him. You bring nothing to your deliverance. God will use foolish things to shame the wise. God will use unexpected methods to show you that he has all the power, all the grace of a living God. That's why in 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us, but God 
chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is true of Israel's crossing. This is ultimately true of our salvation. It's also true in our discipleship. Every single day where you feel frustrated by your limitations, your abilities to cross whatever threshold you're trying to get crossed, it may actually be God saying, you need to look to me. You need to come to the end of yourself in order to discover my grace. And maybe you haven't experienced the grace of God because you're still living in your strength. It's very possible as followers of Jesus to say God has got my salvation and to try and do every single thing else in our life by our own ability. You see this time and time and time again. Maybe God wants you to come to that precipice of inability so that you would begin to trust him, so that he would get glory in whatever happens in your life, and so that you wouldn't. This may be true of your aspirations personally in your life. This may be true of our church. This may be true in all kinds of ways in our life. Let me give you this concluding thought as we're closing. Maybe this is what you need to, to see, especially if you've been a Christian for a long time. This, is, this point has really kind of been resonating in my mind this week. You know, this is parallel to the crossing of the Red Sea. And the first crossing was an exodus. It was an exit out of slavery and bondage, completely about God's grace. And that's obvious. God had to do that. The second parting was an entrance into the promised land, but it's still upon God's grace. I think God is reminding me this week, and maybe he needs to remind you this week, he's not done with you at your salvation. He's not just done when you exit out of sin and death and you get salvation by his grace. He's not done with you there. Every part of your life is meant to draw attention to him, to have you fix your eyes upon his grace and power. Maybe you're experiencing very little power in your Christian life because you look back and you say, well, God did that there, and you try to do every single bit of crossing in the rest of your life on your own. You tried to control it. You tried to manipulate it. You tried to think your way around it. You tried to use everything in your means to do it. And it's still frustrating. And then you get mad at God. You give up on God. And maybe that's the place you're at. You've kind of done that for so long, you're just numb. Well, God has been there in the past. He's kind of around now, but I don't have no power in the, in the Christian life, and I'm okay with that. No, don't be okay with that. God didn't just bring them out in his power. He wants to bring them in. He's showing us every part of your life of following him is meant to be fixed on him in his grace and power. Every bit of it. Friends, I pray that that would be something that revives your heart today. One of the things I sense in our church, being an established church for a number of years, having mostly Christians who've been Christians for quite a long time, or people who've grown up in a Christian church, you have dead spiritual lives. I feel it often that our church is spiritually dead because maybe you're only looking at the past and saying, this is where God has worked, and you're running into frustrations now 
and then all you're doing is trying to do your own strength around it, where God has brought you to that place to bring you to trust him. And that's where life is found. That's where revival is found, at that place of need, the limitation of yourself, and you cry out to him. Let's do that together, church. Would you take a moment in a posture, and however you want to posture this way, of receiving from the Lord. Too much of my life is doing, controlling, doing it on my own. If you need to put your hands open in your lap or in the air, or maybe just however openness is a posture for you, would you put yourself in that place for a second? And maybe it's considering lifting up to him that frustration and asking him to, to fix your eyes on him. Maybe it's an openness just to receive from him. Would you take a moment, let the Holy Spirit minister to you. Father, even as I'm breathing and more attentive to that, I'm reminded that that is from you every single breath. Just as you breathe life into us to physically live, we need you to breathe by your Holy Spirit life into our whole being so we would be near to you. Father, we're lifting up and surrendering with our hands open our human efforts, our human complaints. We want to trust you, Lord. In our frustrations, we lift them up to you. We want our eyes to be fixed on you, anticipating and expecting you to be a promise-keeping God. Father, this is a posture of openness, so we want to receive from you. Lord, may you, by your Spirit, right now pour comfort and peace and your presence into my brothers and sisters who need to experience spiritual life again. Because their spiritual life, even they came this morning, they maybe didn't expect anything from church, but they're just there. When God pour into them revival of their hearts, breathe into them so that we would be followers of you that are alive because you are a living God. So that we would be a church that truly can emanate light because we are actually filled with you. So teach us in the midst of uncomfortable, unexpected timing, circumstances, all this to turn our attention to you so that you would receive glory as you do things in our lives and in this world that have no human explanation, may your name be lifted high. Amen.